0: Check out idealwine.com for more information. That's I D E A L W I N E.com to find what you'd like to be drinking. I'm Levy Dalton, and this is All Drink to That, where we get behind the scenes of the wine business. Jim Clendenon is here today. Hello, sir. How are you? I'm I'm great, Lovey. Nice <laughs> to be here. One of the real legends of of California winemaking, especially Southern California winemaking, uh, somebody I've always looked up to and and the mind behind Avant Climate and, and also Clendenon Family Winery and Ishi the Ba. Hello. Hey, great to be here. So you, you, you started uh you know you got out of the law uh track in the seventies. And you, and you decided uh, after a trip to Europe to, to maybe throw your hat in the, the winemaking ring.
1: How did it all really happen? You know, it was a really chaotic time in the, uh, in the 70s, as you well know, uh, emotionally and politically. And uh, I was a great student when I was young in Ohio. I moved to California. It became more and more difficult through the late 60s to uh, actually care that much about school and uh, there was a lot going on. And so uh, I went to UC Santa Barbara. That was pretty much all that my parents would pay for, state school system, nothing else. And uh, uh, did well there and and, uh, and and graduated in a pre-law degree, but uh, was just pretty much done with my idea of attending class and going to class. And the concept of uh, of, of being a law student was something that was quite difficult. So I took a year As you mentioned, in Europe in 1974 and went to 18 countries, but spent quite a bit of time in France, Spain, Italy, and in wine regions. Then I uh, went back after uh, graduating in 1977 and spent time in Champagne and in Burgundy. And after spending, uh, I effectively turned 21 living in Bordeaux. Uh, The University of California Santa Barbara had its uh, overseas program studying at the University of Talence. And so I ended up, Coming back after the 77 trip, thinking that uh, uh, I could actually make a living in the wine business when I saw people in Burgundy. In Bordeaux, you can't. Unless you're a Duke, Count, uh, Baron, or Prince, it's not going to happen. In Burgundy, if you have a tractor, three rows of vines, and a room for 20 or 30 barrels in your basement, you can be as powerful as anybody in the area. So uh, I applied to law school, one law school, Bolt Hall at Berkeley, and uh, I was late in my application. They didn't accept me, and, and I started dragging hose and uh, worked for Zaka Winery in California, and then uh, around the world, I went to Australia and did two vintages there, one in the Hunter Valley, one in the Goldburn Valley. And then I ended up in uh, in Burgundy, where uh, I learned that everything else I'd learned had been a waste of time. And my life was going to be a, a, not loosely, but accurately based on a Burgundian model. And and what was that experience at Zacca Mesa like? You know, it was a real think tank for California wines. You know, we did experiments with open top fermentation, whole cluster of fermentation, you know, everything we read about we could do. We weren't selling the wines. The wines that we were selling were made in a much more commercial fashion. But there was Ken Brown, who was the, uh, the winemaker there, and then later on uh, became involved with the Mondavi Group at Byron. Bob Lindquist, who does Coupé, who's doing a sensational job. My partner in starting Au Bon Climat, Adam Tomac, who uh, has the Ohio Vineyards and for a while took a, a walk in the wild side and started making those deep, brooding, alcoholic wines, but uh, is back making the most pristine and elegant wines that, um, that I've tasted. And I love to drink them. I used to uh, buy his wines to, to keep up with what he was doing and, and often find them a little bit... Um, Juicy and uh, uh, fruit bomb and uh, heavy for me. And now when I buy them, they are just as elegant as wine can be made in the new world.
0: So it was really, there was a lot of people around at that time that really became long-term partners in your own exploration of
1: wine in one way or another. Absolutely. We were all single. We had uh, nothing to do out in the horse country of the San Inez Valley except have wine tastings, and we were just uh, gluttonous in the things that we uh, collected. We made very little money, but uh, in effect, when you could buy second-growth Bordeaux's for uh, under $8, uh, you, very little money went a long way back then, and uh, and, and it was all spent, uh, I, I will euphemistically say, on education. <laughs> so you were there three years for,
0: at Zaka Mason? I was. And... W- uh, what did you take from that in terms of not just the personal experiences but the wine experiences? Did you feel like uh, some of the directions you
1: charted there were important later on? You know, they were important later on. Uh, one of the reasons was we found out that even in the San Inez Valley, a, a warmer part of uh, uh, what now is the San Inez and uh, Santa Rita Hills area, that few people were planted, but Sanford and Benedict was planted at that time. We found that Pinot Noir worked well. Chardonnay, of course, worked almost perfectly all over California at that time because of the style the people. Uh, we're, we're making, and then I found out, uh, just tasting one experimental wine made by my neighbor at Firestone uh, Vineyards, Tony Austin. He made an experimental Pinot Noir from Santa Maria fruit. We just thought the Santa Maria plantings were a joke. You know, they were huge. They had customers as uh, as wonderful as Christian Brothers Winery and Gallo. You know, it was just a lost place to, uh, to grow grapes. And of course, that's where I'm centered now. And after tasting that wine, I said, "Wow." More acidity, more brightness, more Burgundian nuance. This is the kind of thing I'm looking for. And so that's just up the road from Mesa. You continue up Fox and Canyon Road, you end up in the Santa Maria Valley, and there we stay. It's really a remarkable area, as far as I'm concerned, to grow grapes. And at the time, Napa was kind of king
0: in terms of California. Is that, is that true? I mean, Absolutely. people are a little more... Focused a
1: little further north in California. Yeah, it was Sinapa, Sinapa Noma Mendocino. <laughs> or, or whatever it was, yeah. So um, it was interesting because after we started having our first successes, uh, Zakanesa was a really, you know, regular winner at the uh, gold medal circuit. Um, Mandavi came down and, and bought fully uh, a third of the planted vineyards in Santa Barbara County, and Behringer wasn't uh, long behind. And so effectively, all of those early plantings that didn't have homes then became... In the beginning, the most important sources for cool climate grapes, for the Mondavi Corporation, for uh, um, Mondavi Family Vineyards, for Behringer, for uh, uh, Kendall Jackson, you know, they came into the area too. And, and uh, the thing that was most negative was that the reputation that we had built up was then uh, completely collapsed. During the the subsequent economic downturns and all of a sudden you had a meridian chardonnay that was uh, put out by the Beringer group That was the same price as a bon climat And then when the economy got rough, it was $4.99 instead of $15.99 and uh, the first Sacrificial lamb in all their organizations. They wouldn't risk uh, The reputation of napa or sonoma the places that they were long known for and even though these were the areas we'd all identified as the greatest grape producing Regions for Pinot Noir and Chardonnay, as far as I'm concerned, and, and still, you know, you can have your Sonoma Mountain and some of these uh, rough and tumble, short growing season but hot weather kind of places, and uh, and if you like them, that's wonderful. And and if I find, you know, Ross Cobb, elegant winemaker making elegant wines, I think that's wonderful. When, when I find somebody making a 15% alcohol wine from a cool climate vineyard, because it's so cool. Some years we'd have to make champagne. Oh, but look, we just made a wine with 15.5 alcohol. <laughs> Ten years in a row, you know. It's just a, it's a different orientation towards uh, uh, effectively controlling what you're trying to do: vintage in and vintage out. And and you did go to Burgundy. One of the things that
0: I really find interesting about you is how you keep up with that. You know, I always see you every year at La Pale. I don't, I can't think of another winemaker that I always see, American winemaker that I always see at La Pale. It seems like Burgundy has always been a fascination for you. It has.
1: Uh, how did that really? You know, get going. What were some of the early experiences? Well, you know, I was really blessed because uh, my friend Mel Knox, who now is the American importer for Francois Frere Barrels began working with Becky Wasserman, who now is well-known as a courtier en vin. But in the beginning, what she was doing was selling Francois barrels in America. Then she had a small partnership with Phil Diamond, a lawyer in San Francisco, and a number of other guys that was called Diamond Wine Merchants. And she set out to begin selecting some some wines. Then she got involved with Kermit Lynch. And all of a sudden, she was just all about finding great winemakers and uh, identifying how they worked. So at that time, there were only about half a dozen of us that were asking... Uh, people like Mel and Becky to, to find us jobs over there. You know, there wasn't that much interest. I mean, uh, the same Tony Austin who, who was uh, a- around, you know, when, when I was growing up in the San Jose Valley, went over with Andre Chelychev, and he came back not speaking French and only having things probably presented by marketing people and, instead of uh, translators, in, instead of the, uh, the grape growers, the vineyards themselves, came back saying everything that they do, in in burgundy and bordeaux is just exactly like what we do in the uh, san joes valley. so i went over there and i came back and said, you know, nothing that we do over <laughs> here has any relationship to what they're doing over there. it was so crazy, you know, if we wanted to use stems instead of understanding that whole clusters were there for a reason, they would de-stem fruit in California and then chop the stems up and pump it through their must lines. And so they'd have macerated, chopped vegetable matter in their fermenters and wonder why they didn't get the same character that, say, Domaine Dujac or, uh, or Romani Conti got with their whole cluster fermentation. It's just funny how things get translated. I remember when um, Michael Benedict, a very serious winemaker, but not a very effective winemaker at that stage in his career, had red wines spending the winter going through malolactic fermentation in open top tanks, some years not even with plastic over the top. And he asked me if the surface growth that developed in his winery was something that I discovered happening in Burgundy. And I, of course, said, well, no, you know, as soon as the open top fermenter is finished fermenting the juice gets taken off and put into barrels. And if they don't have enough barrels, it gets taken off and put into enamel tanks. But everything's topped up all the time. You would never see someone leaving their wine in uh, an open-top container like this. And he'd been doing it for three years just because he saw they had open-top containers and never bothered to ask where the wine went afterwards. And it's just the simple kinds of things that working on a property, which I did with the domain Duke-Jumichette, excuse me, Duke de Magenta, and oh, also, sure. also with La Laboustor. store um, the, the, Those places gave me hands-on experience and visual verification of what I was doing. And because I could speak French, I was in the cellar. My partner, Adam, was with me. And because he couldn't speak French, he was picking grapes with these little Portuguese ladies who were like locusts. Keeping up with them was a chore for Adam, that's for sure.
0: And, and so... Uh, who were kind of like besides Becky, other people that really stood out for you
1: on the on the burgundy sojourn, you know um. I had a, a wonderful opportunity, and I and I've just talked about this recently, and uh, and Becky can't remember it, and so there's nothing I can say about it because uh, I was talking with uh, Jay McInerney when he was writing an oh, article okay. about me recently, and oh, and congrats. so he, he called he called uh, he called Becky and said Becky, did Jim write this catalog? And she goes, Well, I don't remember. And so what what she asked me to do after I finished my harvest was to go around to all of her growers, and interview them and find out what they did as far as barrel utilization. No way. for village. Village was fantastic. She gave me a dish of that's the, the best thing ever for. You you. A free place to stay <laughs> and uh, and access to all these people to find and out what they just to ask did. them methodology questions exactly. of the top growers? And so I went oh to uh, my God. Every, everybody that she handled <laughs> and, uh, and and knew concretely exactly what they were doing. Now, it never it was supposed to be turned into a dossier that she could give to the people that were buying the wines to understand winemaking, and I think in the end... A lot of Burgundians have this feeling, and, and, and that is, you know, why are you so concerned about how I make the wine? If you like my wine and appreciate its style and balance, this is wonderful. How I make my wine is my business. And I remember when Dominique said that to a big crowd up at the International, Dominique Lafon, yeah. at, at the International Pinot Noir celebration, and they're all going, asshole, you know. And it's true. How he does it. Is his business, and every year it may change or it may not change. you know I have to tell you that there was no magic in any recipe that uh, Henri Jaillet had for his wine. He had a wife. Marcel, who was an extraordinary farmer, directed a team of people that did meticulous work better than anybody else in Von romanay And that's the reason the wines were so good. And then Henri's winemaking with the cold maceration would happen naturally. It wasn't enforced. It wasn't a technique. He had cold concrete tanks. It took four days for the must to warm up enough to begin fermenting. And it just is the way it happened. And when you tasted his wine in barrel... You never found a bubble out of place. You know, you never smelled a whiff of, wow, that's a little bit funky and reductive. It should be taken, you know, taken care of. You never tasted anything out of place. Everything corresponded, all new oak from Burgonia all the way to Riesburg. you never tasted a single wine out of place in bad condition. If it was going through malolactic, you know, you go to some places and the wine smells like shellac, it's not taken care of, and, and you kind of go, wow, and the guy goes, oh, it's going through malolactic, it'll be fine when it's done. But you never found that character in all Ries wines. And that's something that I've been chasing ever since then because our wines used to go into a deep funk, uh, through malolactic. and you'd smell them, and you'd find them out of condition. You'd find them a little bit sharp and mousy, and and uh, and I'd always wonder why. And of course, we had colony issues. PHs were a little bit higher, and we worked on getting our PHs down. And we work on on hygiene now a little bit with the uh, uh, the ML bugs that we use. And um, you know, I, I won't say that um, the day I die they're going to put, uh, boy, Henri would have admired you on my tombstone. But they're not going to say that I was the worst person that learned from uh, Henri either. Do you think that you watched the period of California growth
0: where it seemed like single-topic answers were often popular or in vogue at certain times? Like, people would be like, it's all about French barrels, or it's all about new barrels, or it's all about mallow. It seemed like every couple of years there was a new, it's all about non-filter. Or, it's all about you know, uh, uh, indigenous yeasts. Yeah, all, yeah well, you know. now, now, you know yeah. what I mean? Like, has yeah. that just, like, been one somersault after another of kind of, like, single-answer answers? You know, into the, the the circle peg into the big hole of exactly. of
1: the board and, and what does that feel like? I mean, you, you know, it's um I've always been a little bit controversial on, on, on things that I do and believe in. And I think what works for you, if you have a great product, is really good. And I also think that um, if you're relying on the latest on vogue trend to make your decisions about what you're going to do, you're likely not to be a very good winemaker. And, and when people replant their vineyards, you know, now we're all going to go to Dijon clones. What does that mean? I think that means that they hated or disliked or at least weren't totally proud and content with the wines that they were making. When we replanted everything, we kept 50% of our grapes exactly the same clonal material that had been planted in, in Santa Barbara County or planted by me and other places for the previous. 25 to 50 years.
0: So is that Wente clone stuff? You know,
1: there's, there's Wente clone Chardonnay, but mostly it's Davis super clone, you know, okay, okay. You know and Pinot Noir clone four and clone five, uh, the Pomard clone, yeah. Martini clone. You know, mostly it's just a historical Davis, uh, you know, reproduction block kind mm. of material. And it's not the best material on the planet, but it delivered something that we were proud of when we were making it. I made wines in... Uh, Oh, I believe 85, 86, 87, I'll just say with Adam that, um, you know, people like James Halliday were lit up with, you know, if, if you read Halliday's California Wine Atlas, he says that if you're going to buy Pinot Noir and Chardonnay from only one group in America, it's au bon climat. And that was all Davis Superclone, no new plantings, nothing else done, but a style of wine made with those good new French barrels, Lee's Contact. No filtration, and uh, you know the, we we had a litany of things that we did, and uh, you know if people would mimic us, or, or we would mimic somebody else, you know, and, and it was very funny for me when somebody would say barrel fermented, put through malolactic, surly bottle without filtration, and, and give me a wine that that tasted like a sweet California sweet innocuous California Chardonnay didn't taste anything like Burgundy at all, and you realize that his interpretation of what he did in barrel fermentation versus what we did probably a little different. We probably didn't settle before we went to barrel. He might have had totally clean juice. Who knows? But when you give me a wine and I don't tell anything about it from what I smell or taste until the winemaker tells me, it's a little bit like going into a modern art museum and having somebody walk up and tell you why this painting that you just hated five minutes before is really great. And if that's the way you appreciate art or movies after somebody else tells you about them, then uh, that's not the way I make wine. That's for sure.
0: So you came back and you started uh, ABC with with Adam Tolmach. Originally, you guys were partners. And, I mean, you kind of started on a shoestring, almost on a model that's uh, being replicated now with more boutique operations that don't own uh, a lot of vineyards or maybe don't own their own new cellar space and are kind of working out of rented space. Uh, You know, in a way, you kind of set that tone for, hey, how can we make wine? Uh, in areas that are not
1: well exploited and how can we do it for what we can afford? You know, in uh, in Santa Barbara, that's no question we set the trend. You know, there, there was only one other small winery in the beginning before we started, uh, b- besides Brander making Sauvignon Blanc in the San Jose Valley, and, and, and that was... Um, uh, Sanford and Benedict. Sanford. And, you know, they planted a hundred acres. They got a bunch of partners involved and, uh, and it was a rocky road financially for them afterwards, just because of, because you know, didn't pay them a lot of money when he bought the grapes. <laughs> we, we, by the <laughs> end, know. we, by the end, we started paying them really low, <laughs> not somebody money for sure. That was the best thing. That the, the, the winemaking partnership falling apart and me getting those grapes was one of the greatest things that's happened in my life. Anyway, my partner Adam and I each ponied up $25,000, and we bought grapes. We picked them ourselves. In the beginning for three years was Adam and I out in the field and our family and friends coming on weekends. And uh, the first year was a, was a classic year. We made 1,600 cases of wine. And I had to bottle and sell a uh, rosé that was made out of um, 80% Pinot Noir juice, pressed pink, and 20% Chardonnay fermented in barrel. Really good wine. But I had to sell that in January after it was picked so that I could get enough bottles money to buy the bottles, to bottle a third of my Chardonnay so we could sell that, to get enough money to bottle the rest of the Chardonnay so we could sell that. And and we, and we got through the year that way. There wasn't a lot of profitability, but uh, you know, back then, every bottle of wine we sold, we made money on. And, uh, and then we just uh, began to grow organically from ourselves. And I think one of the things that probably pushed Adam and I apart as partners is I was pretty motivated uh, by 89 and 90. We were on Robert Parker's top 10 winemaker or, or most interesting winemaker, however he categorizes it list. And it did a lot for us in public relations. Uh, it broadened our market dramatically. And, oh, it did. And we expanded uh, production over the, over that decade to about 10,000 cases. And we had nothing, you know, people were getting a pallet in Colorado. You could you could uh, line up for four pallets in New York. And, and then there was no other wine available. And so it made us arrogant. It made us, um, humorless. You know, if you would have listened to my uh, answer phone messages back then, back in the days of, uh, answer machines, you would have thought, what a dickhead. There's no question about that. But in the, uh, uh, in the reality of things, um, I decided after that to make more wine. And I think Adam was much more comfortable, uh, Saying if ABC would have stayed the size we were at about ten thousand cases, and I think you know he, he's making between five and ten thousand cases at at Ojai now on his own. And so, uh, you know, at, at one point in uh, the huge two thousand nine harvest, I, I crushed over sixty thousand cases of uh, grapes because I can't say no. I love to make wine. I have a phenomenal team of guys: Jim Edelman, Enrique Rodriguez, uh, uh, Arturo. Our uh, you know he runs our bottling line now, and he's been with me. You know, I think Arturo is the shortest term worker, and he's 16 or 17 years. Jim Edelman's been around since 91, so he's uh, general manager of the company and leads the team of winemakers. He's been with me for 22 years. Enrique, the cellar master, has been with me for 24 years. He worked back in the old Los Alamos dairy barn days. And those guys are so good at executing my vision of what wine should be like that um, we, we now can do better work with better equipment. Uh, and, and I believe if you taste the ABC wines now, I, I think you'd agree that uh, they, they, they are just... Uh, Seamless and far better than uh, when I was painting. Uh, when I was painting fine art with a house brush, and doing the things the way I did it.
0: Well, I mean, I've always liked the wines, and I've also always been impressed by how well they age. I mean, some of those examples of Chardonnay from the early '90s have really been wonderful. Thanks. I and mean, it's not often remarked upon, at least not in circles that I travel in. But when bottles have been open, uh, I've really enjoyed them, and that's part of the reason you know I wanted to have you on the show. Was actually. I mean, it's not so many new world wines that I have a long track record of liking. Yours are certainly part of it, and something else that's also been impressive to me is that, although you started on kind of a Burgundian axis, you were really willing to just go where the curiosity took you with different grape varieties, whether it be Torronte, whether it be, uh, you know something uh from italy uh whether it be rafasco whether it be aliatico you're willing to make those wines and you're also willing to make the restaurant connection like really work with Sommiers, and be like hey what do you need maybe we could make you a house cuvee in a way that was approachable during a period of time when a lot of california winemaking felt like you had to queue up on the waiting list you went the opposite way like where it was like hey uh you know, we're a cold cab, you can get in line, maybe you don't get any this year. You came out and said, hey, what can we make that you can pour by the glass? It was like the opposite. And that was my Jim then experience.
1: Yeah, you know, which, which is great. I uh, it, was, it was kind of an interesting way that the um, whole Italian project started. Uh, my friend Daryl Cordy from Sacramento, one of the uh, great... Uh, you know he calls himself a grocer but you know the, the guy that kind of introduced fine fine tea to uh to california olive oil to california italian wines for sure a man in the room if you can imagine this being in the room both for the creation of sasakaya in 1968 and uh and, and tignanella you know by, by being friends of uh piro uh, uh right. Antonori, yeah and also the you know marchese de and chesa della roquetta and and uh you know, he helped me make some of my Italian blends in the beginning, but he came down because everybody in Italy, including Angelo Gaia's team, including of all people, Josco Gravner, everybody was searching. And what they were searching for was how to make an international style of wine that would be respected all over the world. You know, they all wanted to be, you know, the next Dagano in Sauvignon Blanc. They wanted to be the next, uh, you know, whatever, but they didn't want to be what they were. And so when I had all these great guys, Paolo Marchi, you know, one of the greatest guys you'll ever meet in your life, come in and tell me they were experimenting with Cabernet. They wanted to make it like Napa did. And they were experimenting with Chardonnay and they wanted to make it like I did, which was really a Burgundian model, but they couldn't go to Burgundy and get the same kind of uh, reinforcement about what they were doing and whether they were doing it correctly. And so I went the following year and it was the first year that I went to to Vinitaly in the late eighties. And I went over and, uh, and I asked what grapes are you giving up? So I fell in love with, Nebbiolo, which is the dirtiest, wartiest, most wretched grape on the planet. And uh, uh, just when you drink a great one, you know you've had uh, a soul-enriching experience. And then Tokai Friolano, um, we, we, uh, we began to work with uh, grapes from all over uh, Italy. And at one point, I had 13 different varieties that I was making and selling. It was competing with myself because nobody was buying American-made Italian varieties. And uh, we've now pared it down and kept our love affair going with uh, nebbiolo and and tokai and you know that that's pretty much uh pretty much all we do but you know when you make those the only way you can really get them uh well received is to find people that believe in what you're doing and want to represent it. Because if they just go on a shelf, I, I, uh, I'm really good friends with uh, Mario Batali and he's a, he's a great guy and he really likes our Italian projects and he takes, he takes good care of them. He's coming out in food and wine magazine. I was just told by somebody at the editorial staff, um, pairing an Italian dish with, uh, I, I I believe an Italian meat dish with, with my Chardonnay, which is an incredible thing. Um, but, but, Um, A couple years ago, he served uh, Nebbiolo at his uh, family's uh, either Thanksgiving or Christmas that that I made. And, uh, you know, it just gets out in the blogosphere and all of a sudden people are looking for it. But I asked him one time, you know, and and sometimes, you know, Joe and I talk business, Joe Bastianich all the time, too. But I asked him one time if I could have my wine in in Italy, you know, wouldn't that be wonderful? Wouldn't it be a great reference point? Well, I walked into Italy and I couldn't even find Joe Bastianich's wine. And he owns a good portion of the place, you know, and there's so much wine there. And and the chance of anyone finding the one American Cal Italian alternative is nil. And there would have been no business there. It's just like all the guys that want to be on three-star restaurant uh, uh, wine lists in France. You know, yeah, you'll be on the back page. It'll say wines from the USA. You'll feel really good when you see it, but you're not going to sell six bottles in a year, no matter how it happens. And so a relationship with... With you uh, in three states, man. You know, you, you've uh, you've helped me I, Massachusetts, I tried to, tried Florida, to through. New, New York, and and uh, uh, and then finding something that you can believe in that you can support. That's the nature of the way I want to do business. You know, I uh, I can't meet and hug every Somalia in America, and I can't meet and hug any guy wearing a suit for a large distribution company that uh, that works for me. Uh, it's it's just you know amazing thing. If I'm in the car with them, they like me and, uh, and respect me. And the next day, there's somebody in the car with them. And so to sell your wine in, in this kind of environment, the, the choices that we made to, to ally ourselves with the uh, Daniel Baludes and the Emerald Agassiz and the Druckings Leach of the world. I mean, it has yeah. for years. Yeah, you know? it's
0: really, really good. And, and uh, I mean, how have you seen that, that market change over the years? I mean, you've kind of been in a driver's seat for one aspect of California wine for a long time.
1: Yeah, and, and you know, there are other people that, that are really clever. You know, obviously, Kevin O'Connor would be a great example with uh, with his partner Matt. Who's you that? Know, I'm sorry. You know, Kevin was the sommelier at Spago. Oh, and okay, they okay. now and they now have Lyoko. Oh, sure. And so well, those wines uh, are very hypnotic. Yeah, yeah, and every time that that I am approached by uh, some somebody who wants to uh, you know do a wine, I'll give give you a great example. My friend Frank Stett and Frank's down in Birmingham, phenomenal restaurateur. He's got uh, three operations down there that are just truly. You know the soul of a really vibrant, revitalized Birmingham, Alabama, and uh, I make his Pinot Noir. I, I make a wine that has been as crazy as Nebbiolo, and uh, Nebbiolo and Barbera, not crazy, but uh, oh, I did one year. I, I did it to eighty percent Nebbiolo, twenty percent Fresa, if you can imagine, for a wine. And sometimes they were crazy. ugly. Sometimes they were really fruity, and then we finally settled on pure Barbera. And, uh, and a little bit more fruit-driven, and I think his customers liked it a little bit more. I'm not sure he liked it personally a little bit more. But we, we made those wines, and, and there was a possibility of making Chardonnay. And, you know, I'm a, Frank and I have a great relationship over a long time. We both started our companies in 82, 30-year anniversaries together and, and stuff like that. And, and yet Matt and Kevin uh, had a Chardonnay in the ring to, to be able to get the Chardonnay pour. And it was kind of interesting. You know, I ended up uh, uh, prevailing, but I thought, how did those guys... Find out about the opportunity, yeah. and uh, they just do, and 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 they're out there making products that are very food friendly, that that are priced in a, in a very proximate relationship to what, what uh, we've been doing, and and I say more power to them because uh, uh, there is much more business out there than than I could ever do, and uh, and as long as their heart's in the right place and they deliver really high quality product, then the chef. And Vintner relationship gets enhanced uh, and and nothing else. But I only use them as an example because, you know, they basically came out of nowhere with a program um, in in mind about how to execute something. And I always say that um, I don't believe it's possible to do what Adam and I did anymore, it just because true. there's so much competition now. There's so much uh, more product available for more players. You know, yeah, I know people in Italy that are, that are would come over here and, and make a white wine for a restaurant group. And, uh, you know, you have Aldo Sam, you know, pouring me a totally delicious wine that, that he made with Gerhard Crocker and, uh, you know, a, gr- a Gruner uh, halfway across the world. And, uh, you know, there is so much more of that going on. And, uh, you know, you, you see Rajat Parge starting not only his own winery, sure. but also his uh, ne- negociant business <laughs> yeah. in France. And, yeah. you know, and, and it's uh, it's great when you pull things together, it's much more complicated and there's much more competition in doing it. Uh, we've been lucky that the people that I began with, I'm, I'm a pretty loyal guy. And the people that I've begun with are really loyal people because they all could have saved a dollar a bottle and, and, and kicked me out a long time ago. And, and that's what's wonderful. And, uh, you know, when you see... Daniel Baloud's effusive smile, and he goes, "Jim, how did you get this one right?" When he's tasting the uh, two thousand and ten Chardonnay, which was just a, it was a stellar bottling. Uh, it just turned out great. It was a great vintage for us. You know, like in Burgundy, it was a vintage of concentration, great acidity. And, uh, and and in his the case of the Chardonnay, you can tell that he drinks it a lot. And he was just, you know, knocking it back, probably having a glass at some point with a friend. And uh, all of a sudden, when he tasted the 2010, it lit him up. It was just great. And, you know, to have him reach out and contact me and just say I, I had the wine, it was great. I mean, there's a guy with a lot of time. Yeah. Right. <laughs> right. Right. Hanging around, twiddling his thumbs. <laughs> and, uh, uh, it, it was a great thing for me. And that kind of, uh, affirmation isn't just the reason that, that I do those relationships. You know, the the real reason I do the relationships is, um, we are by the glass Chardonnay because my name's on it, Danielle's name's on it and his staff believes in it. And it just, um, for a relationship and selling wine, it doesn't get any easier. It doesn't get any better. They order it because when it's gone, They want to replace it because it's got their name on it. And I don't have to go out and and, uh, find 500 people to buy five cases. I can find three people to buy 2,500 cases. And that's uh, that's an economy of scale that for an old, tired man like me (laughs) has certain merit. No, it makes a lot of sense because
0: also those relationships have continued over years. I mean, when I think of the length of the time that you've sold wine to Kat at Number Nine Park or the length of time that you sold wine to Danielle here in New York, I mean, those are long term relationships. I have
1: got um, you know, Roy, Roy Yamaguchi over uh, twenty years and I've got That's Emerald, right, Roy, Emerald at eighteen and I've got Joaquin uh, Joachim Splishall in uh, in LA and you know, various places around the world for uh twenty twenty-two. Uh, Years so it's it, it's been great for me it, it has been
0: and I mean do you find that the wines that you make are received differently in different parts of the United States I
1: I, I very much do and sometimes that's really frustrating I mean uh, as as one of your uh, earliest markets uh, Massachusetts yeah you know it's such a funny thing to make exactly the style of wine that Massachusetts wine drinkers want to drink and then be lumped into the category of Californian wine that they don't want to drink without tasting it. And so uh the funniest thing happened this year and uh, uh I I didn't see it coming. I go every year and I and I you know play the uh poor cousin from uh the Appalachians. Hey, nice to see you. Why do you hate me so much, you know? And uh this year after Eric Asimov wrote that we were the best value in Chardonnay available in America. Yeah, I remember that. That's yeah. right. It was a really lovely thing that he, that he did. And then uh, uh, it, it, and I talked to him about it last night at the Pole and, and he was, uh, not, not to date this interview, but uh, it is the day after the Pole. And... Uh, and, We're and, not going to tell you what year, you though. Okay, <laughs> and and he absolutely uh, said no. He's going through uh, uh, all the things he was tasting, and he was looking at price points and stuff, and, and and he wanted to say that. Well, they ran out of all the wine that they had in Massachusetts. Is that true? Because yeah, Eric, yeah, yeah, they never, ever, ever boy had enough wine. I always said, you know, you used to buy this at a pallet of time. Now you're buying at fourteen, sixteen, eighteen. You know what's going on? No way. Fourteen, sixteen, eighteen pallets. Wow. Cases. Oh, cases. cases. Okay, okay, okay. I said, Oh, I said, What if, okay. all, like, well, what yeah. I said, What if all, no, but what if all of your customers ordered wine one week? You couldn't reorder. Yeah. And so after Eric had uh, this in, in the paper, the New York Times, then all of a sudden everything was sold out. And they were silly enough. I won't say they were silly. They were motivated enough that they called and wanted to borrow wine from New York. And the New York distributor that I have is a very small distributor. They're wonderful. They do an extraordinary job for me, but it's not like they got a warehouse like MS Walker does, you know, up in Massachusetts. But anyway, we finished the last year with the greatest sales in the history of Massachusetts because somebody told the citizens of Massachusetts that they should buy this wine, which has always been in Massachusetts. And for some reason, they listened, and they tried the wine. And so the 9 flew out, the 10 flew out. And, uh, you know, it's a style of wine that I love. It's got no new oak. It's got a lovely Lee's component. It's not filtered. It's a year in barrel and uh, all about acidity and, and perfume and bright stone fruit kind of character. is not overwhelming. In fact, it's underwhelming. In every kind of sense, until you put the right food in your mouth, and uh, and maybe when you're on your second glass, it kind of strikes you about uh, how much material there and texture and and uh, richness that that's in the wine that's not evident from the beginning. But anyway, we tripled, quadrupled, maybe more our sales in one year, and it's just continued with uh, with that strength. And I think somehow the the wine drinking public, you know, I always said this about uh, sideways and Pinot Noir too, that you know it, it's like May West, you know. To, to talking to our director, I'm ready for my close-up now, Cecil. Or who? who I may be mixing metaphors, but uh, that's it. We were ready for our close-up because the wine was delivering in the bottle exactly what Eric promised, and when people bought it, they kept on buying it. The same thing with Pinot Noir after Sideways. Sideways would have gone nowhere as a as a film if it would have been made 15 years before. People would have tasted our stemmy, weedy, uh, improperly planted and poorly farmed. Uh, uh, Pinot Noirs, and, and said, okay, I'm going back to Merlot. <laughs> but instead, when they tasted them, the wines were delicious, and, uh, and people have continued drinking them, which is, which is great. I mean, that category exploded, and people say it's gone down, and it hasn't gone down at all. It's continuing to explode, but there's no question that uh, people are drinking, you know, maybe other things. But uh, at one point, if you walked into Emeralds Restaurant in Las Vegas, for instance, uh, uh, Delmonico's a Steakhouse, Every table had a bottle of Pinot Noir on it. Now that's a little bit artificial, but uh, you still walk in there and you see, still see way more Pinot Noir there than you would have seen had had uh, people not seen sideways wanted to try Pinot. From a sommelier perspective, it's just an easy
0: sale, California Pinot. I mean, it's just like a no-brainer. Like you can very easily sell that. Yeah. Uh, I mean, where do you see the changes after so long in the business? What do you see the changes of the next ten years? Like what you know critical shifts I mean we saw some you mentioned how much of a voice Eric has now and how much that carries you know we saw kind of a, a change there with his is more and more following and I mean what's gonna happen in the future? what, are you,
1: what are you what are you thinking about in that crystal ball? Well you know from a uh, critical point of view, I, th- I think that the the day of hegemony of a very few critics, uh, the day of that influence, at least for the American consumer, is um, pretty much over. I think that um, there are so many people recommending things now out there from, you know, intelligent columns in the Wall Street Journal to uh, bloggers that have a, you know, viewpoint on on every subject about wine, uh, that there's going to be much more information available. And that information is going to allow access to more and more distinct wines to Everyday consumers, you know, somebody is going to read something about a Barolo and want to taste it in the same way that I first read about Barolo and wanted to taste it, which I think for maybe the nineties and two thousands just didn't happen that much uh, anymore. You know, I think that the pricing of, uh, expensive, collectible Bordeaux has gone insane and, and people just aren't going to be able to buy those wines. You know, I'm really happy when I taste wines from 89 or wines from 82 or, or wines from 78 because, uh, you know, those wines have developed really nicely. And to imagine what the 2009s or 2010s are going to develop like with the investment that you have, you know, when, when, when you're spending, you know, $6,000 a case, uh, for, for, a, for a box of wine to put it away. Now there are other Bordeaux that because of the quality of what's going on are getting better and better and they have better consultants and you know, th- these are things that you can buy for you know 10 to 20 bucks a bottle and uh, there'll be a lot of that drunk and I think more and more of that drunk as they realize that the American market is looking for that instead of just looking for the collectible bottles. So I, I think that the direct to consumer possibilities of wine are very, very important. You remember that uh, just 10 years ago, uh, virtually all Bordeaux went to an English broker who then tried to find people in America to buy in different places. And, uh, and, and now I think the next thing is going to be, you know, the Chateau Margaux website. Mm-hmm. And people can go on and they can uh, access their stuff from anywhere in the world. And then it'll just be shipped to them some way because I think the Bordelais are tired of giving their money to other people and, and they want to streamline it. I think that uh, Burgundians are, uh, gosh, it's tough for them you know because they have so little wine and there's so much demand on it once it's exposed you know an example uh like last night uh you know there there there, there were people that maybe haven't drunk a bruno claire wine in their life there there were there were people there that um, had been collecting drc or collecting uh dujac or collecting La Fon, uh who who then discover uh you know et Gibourg for for the first time or discover you know something else and and uh and now those wines are going to have you know more stress placed on uh uh, their availability and, and, their, and their prices are going to go up. So, so I see, you know, kind of the elitist collectible products becoming less and less available. And I see the quality of winemaking promoting bottles from areas that otherwise wouldn't have been very noteworthy. You know, there's certain, you know, parts of the Côte de Bourg and Côte de Bly and Saint-Emilion that just wouldn't have merited planting a number of years ago, where now I think they'll be developed and, uh, and make wines that aren't super expensive and uh, are good value.
0: And what about yourself? Do you have some new projects on the horizon?
1: Boy, I've started so many new projects recently, I can't begin to even tell you about them. But I'll tell you in a joking sense about uh, about one, and in a uh, serious sense, I've always wanted to make wine in New Zealand. And there's a possibility that after you know a couple of startup and failed startups, that um, I'm going to be doing so in the next couple of years with uh, uh, James Healy, a good friend of mine, who, who used to work with... Uh, uh, Cloudy Bay. That's when we first met him. He worked uh, the 96 harvest with, uh, with me and with my, my, uh, general manager, Jim Edelman. And, uh, we all became really fast friends and that's kind of fun. He has an idea has a new vineyard and he has an idea of working, doing something. And I think that would be really fun. And then I have a company that I started five years ago and we've yet to release our first bottle with Joachim Hager in, uh, in Germany. And uh, he's in Baden. He, he makes, uh, uh, really good Pinot now. And in the beginning, he didn't make good Pinot. He makes, uh, very famous in Germany, uh, Grauburgunder, you know, Pinot Gris sure, and Weissburgunder. And, uh, and, uh, and, and we, we've been talking about making Pinot Noir in a very Burgundian style from limestone soil. We actually located a vineyard that he's having a hard time nailing down. But if he gets that nailed down, that would be my dream. It's, it's very, very, very calcareous, facing right to France, in, uh, right, right along the uh, uh, Rhine River. And uh, uh, has a chapel uh, broken down on the property. It's just really a cool place. And so we've, we've talked about doing that. But, you know, uh, at, at 60, I can tell you that one, one of the things, it's kind of like flirting with, uh, with a beautiful woman. Just the fact that she uh, says hello and goodbye and gives you a kiss on the cheek and leaves, but she admits that she likes you, is better than actually having to go home and, and get all sweaty and freaked out about things when you're, when you're really old. And so uh, You're not really old. Come on. Anyway, but I'm thinking about that with uh, with these businesses. If Even if they don't come to fruition, they're uh, really close friends and have interesting ideas. And this is what I'm talking about, about the development, because... Uh, Uh, he, it's really hard for, uh, Joachim Hager to sell his wines in America because he can't find a distributor to focus on them because they're a style of wine that everyone in every restaurant in Germany drinks. He makes a massive amount of wine and he's incredibly successful. He won this year, both, uh, Goemio, uh, very important in, in their region and, um, there's another magazine that uh, that has the best portfolio in Germany kind of thing. It's never been won by the same guy uh, for red and for white and from both those publications. And uh, and he won it this year. And, and it's an incredible amount of recognition for him.
0: Well, Mr. Clendenin, it's always a pleasure to have you here. I really enjoy speaking with you. And I wish you continued success. Not that you need to hear it from me because you've you've charted a long course of it. But, uh, you know, good tidings for you at Abancliment and your other ventures. Thank you. Thank you very much. Great to... Uh, Share some time talking with you. The, the one and only Jim Clendenin. Thank you very much. All Drink to That is hosted and produced by myself, Levy Dalton. Aaron Scala has contributed original pieces. Editorial assistance has been provided by Bill Kimsey. The show music was performed and composed by Rob Moose and Thomas Bartlett. Show artwork by Alicia Tenoyan. T-shirts, sweatshirts, coffee mugs.